For the rest of you who are remaining, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Take them out. Turn to Romans 13. We have been in the book of Romans, if, if you're new, since last September, August. It's been a while, hasn't it? And so we are, we are getting here close to the end of, of Paul's book to the Romans. We are in 13 verses 8 through 14 today. And if you're a note taker, I hope you are. You got your pen and your paper there ready to go. I don't know why this thing is boomy. The title of today's sermon is this. Called to love others. Called to love others. And we got two types of people in here. One who's like, I don't want to love other people. I'm ready to go out that door. And then we got some others who are going, no, no, I got it. I love loving others. I'm really good at it. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Called to love others. One of the most famous lyrics ever written about love is, of course, the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. You know that song? Everybody know. All you need is love. I knew somebody would know it. In a statement to Melody Maker magazine, the band's manager, Brian Epstein, said this about the song, All You Need Is Love. He said it was an inspired song. They really wanted to give the world a message. The nice thing about it is that it cannot be misinterpreted. It is a clear message saying that love is everything. Isn't that great? A clear message to the world from John, Paul, George, and Ringo that love is everything. Church family, today what I want you to hear is that God's word has a message for us. Love is everything. God's love, a little bit different idea than the Beatles' love, I'm sure. But he wants us to know that love is everything. Our Lord Jesus himself spoke one of the most memorable passages in the Bible about love. We find it in John 13. I'm going to have it on the screen so you don't have to lose your place. But I bet it'll sound familiar to you if you're a Bible reader. John 13 verse 34 says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Aren't Jesus's words challenging, though? Aren't they challenging? I mean, who among those first first Christians was able to really fulfill that command of loving everyone? Probably not that many. And who in the church today is able to fulfill the command of loving everyone around them, loving their neighbor, maybe even less? I mean, it's becoming harder and harder as the more people raise their hands saying that they claim Jesus Christ, the more people there are on the other side that immediately are against those people. And it's becoming harder and harder for the Christian to love those because he is immediately against those who are against God. God tells us in the Bible, don't be so mad at them. They're not against you. They're against me. He wants us to love them. But the command isn't only challenging, it's also so promising because what does he say? If the church would just put it to work, the promise is that all people would know that we are his disciples. They will know that we are truly his if we obey this command to love one another. I mean, we worry so much about letting people know we love Jesus. We vote for certain people. We put bumper stickers on our car, signs in the yard, stuff on, you know, the Instagram bio. We want them to know. And Jesus says, you want them to know? Love other people. Love. Love is everything. 
The implication is that many will turn to Christ as a result. I mean, how many of you have ever been to some sort of evangelism training? Anybody in the church ever done that? You know, you got your fingers or you got this tract. Jesus says, you want people to come to know Christ? Show them what love looks like. It's the best evangelism tool you'll ever have. And it's so contrasting to people who claim Christ and then don't love other people. That's not very attractive. Not very attractive at all. So turn with me to our passage today, Romans 13, verse 8 through 14. We'll, we'll read the whole thing together right here. And then we will take it apart a little at a time. Romans 13, starting in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. God, teach us your word this morning. Thank it to be clear spirit work in our hearts so that we can put it into practice. Thank you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin. Amen. Today we have very much a Southern Baptist sermon because we will have three points for you note takers. Um, it may be a bonus point at the end, but the first thing is this. The call to love others is, number one, ongoing. The call to love others is ongoing. Paul starts out here in verse 8 by saying, Oh, no one anything. And you think, oh, well, we just came from talking about our relationship to authorities last week. Right. And you think this is going to be a message about, you know, not going into debt and paying your taxes. You should not go into debt and you should pay your taxes. And if you do borrow money from someone, you should pay it back. But this passage isn't really about paying back your debts. It's about love. And Paul says there is one debt which will always remain outstanding because we can never pay it fully. And that is our job, our command, our call to love others as Christians. We can never stop loving somebody and say, I have loved enough. Don't you wish it were that way? Don't you wish that there was a certain level of love that you had to give out as a Christian to everyone and once you reached your quota of love, you could quit loving people, especially hard to love people? Wouldn't you love to be able to say, well, I've done this, 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 and this. I think if I keep loving them, you know, I'm just not even really teaching them a lesson like it's our job to teach everybody lessons. I feel like sometimes I hear people actually say that. But Paul is teaching us today that this call, this command to love others is ongoing. It is a debt that is never fully paid. Aren't you glad that there wasn't a certain level of love that Jesus was going to pour out for us and once he reached it, he stopped? Man. 
one of the church fathers, Origen, he knew this even way back in the second century. He says, so Paul desires that our debt of love should remain and never cease to be owed, for it is expedient that we should both pay this debt and always owe it. The Christian is always a love debtor, always. And some of us are starting to question whether or not we want to be part of that group already because we got people in our minds that they're just hard to love. But if you claim Christ and you have received his love, his unconditional, completely faithful love, then it is our job and our call and our command to give that love to others, no matter how difficult the person is to love. Paul continues in verse 8 saying, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's very interesting. And we know he's talking about the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, these laws that God gave his people Israel when he rescued them from slavery. And he said, this is what it looks like to be my people. It gave them the law. But Paul says, you have fulfilled the whole law if you'll just love your neighbor. Which brings up the question, how is that possible? How does loving my neighbor fulfill the law? If you remember, if you've ever seen a picture of Moses coming down the mountain after meeting with God with the Ten Commandments, how many... How many was he holding? He had the two, right? These, these two tablets, one tablet, two tablets. Sometimes the Ten Commandments are broken up into these two different divisions. The first tablet, if you will, is, gives us vertical or Godward laws, such as? Do not worship any other God. Oh, you got to sing a song? <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, you shall have no other gods before me. You can find those in Exodus 20. You shall know other gods. And oftentimes we, we like to look at those first handful of commands because we think, clearly, I would never worship another god. And, and sometimes we like to kind of speak softer and softer as we go, as we get to the more horizontal commands that talk about how we ought to live with those around us. The second tablet, those horizontal commands that pertain to human relationships. Now, Jesus said that each of these divisions can be summed up with a single comprehensive command in Matthew 23. Do you remember when they asked him, they said, teacher, what's the great commandment? And they only asked for one. Jesus gave them a bonus answer. Matthew 22, verse 37. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And he doesn't stop. He says a second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Or we could say that these two commands summarize all the law. That we would love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, and mind. That we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Don't you love that Jesus just assumed we would love ourselves? Of course he did. He knew we would love ourselves. We wake up loving ourselves. We want the things that we want. We want to be satisfied with the things that satisfy us. We want good things for us. We even pray and ask God for the good stuff, even though we know that if our kid asks us all the time for good things, we know it's best for them to say no sometimes. But we don't want God the Father to say no to us sometimes. He knew we would love ourselves. But he says, if you want to keep the whole law, love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. Now, when we love our neighbors, we will refrain from breaking those horizontal relational commands. We wish that Paul would not go on and give us examples because it would be easier for us to just say, you know, I love people. But he gives us examples in verses 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. 
And as we say these things, we should be thinking of the way Jesus thinks when he let us know that not only is it the action, but it's the thought behind the action, the motive. No committing adultery, no murdering, no stealing, no coveting, and any other command. They are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So he says, when you love your neighbor, you will refrain from adultery. You will not go outside the marriage bed. Oh, no problem. No problem, Pastor Brian. We'll never do that. You will not participate in those kinds of things as an onlooker online. Because that is the same thing, the same motive, the same thought behind the action. Are you with me? I don't know if all the kids left, so I'm trying to be careful. When you love your neighbor, neighbor, you will regard his life as sacred. You should not murder. Okay, no problem, Pastor Brian. You should not hate your neighbor. Even if they vote differently than you. When you love your neighbor, you will respect his ownership of property, whether it's his goat or his lamb or whether it's his yard or whether it's his family or whether it's his money or whatever it is. If he loans you money, you will respect his money and pay his money back. We do not covet the things that other people want. It's one of the laws. And when we love our neighbor, we fulfill the law. There is a sense in which our love for our neighbor is actually a more obvious measure of where we stand with God than our love for God himself. See, sometimes it's easy for me to say that I love God. I can show up at this incredible church family on Sunday. I can read God's word. I can sing these incredibly fun songs to sing, right? You don't know where my heart is, but it's hard for me to fake loving my neighbor, isn't it? Don't you know when someone truly loves you or not? Couldn't you list, if I, if I told you to real quickly on a piece of paper, the people who truly love you in your life? And those who you think maybe they like me, maybe they don't, depending on if it's convenient for them or not. It's hard to fake loving our neighbor. And yet Jesus says this is how we fulfill the law. So our love for others provides a helpful measure of our own spiritual state. So that's the first one. The call to love others is ongoing. Secondly, the call to love others is urgent. It's urgent. Listen to what Paul says starting in verse 11. He says, besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. I love that song we just sang. Wake up, sleeper, lift your head. We were meant for more than this. He says, "Get." we are the light of the world. We are a city on the hill. Too many of us are sleepwalking through this life called Christianity, thinking that we made this decision, we got baptized, and we're good. We wake up every single day loving ourselves the way we were taught to by this world and we don't consider loving our neighbors. Instead, we are sleepwalking until the day that we will finally meet Jesus. We think all is good, but he says, wake up. No more being lazy, spiritually speaking. You know the time. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. What's all this urgent talk that Paul is talking about? He does not see this call to horizontal love as a casual matter. He sees it as having utmost urgency. We are not to be getting our lives all nicely, neatly organized in the way we see fit, accomplishing the things that we want to do and, and seeing all the things in the world we want to see. And then one day we'll learn to serve our, our neighbors and to love our neighbors. 
No, he says it's urgent. Look at all the ways that Paul is focused on time here in these verses. He says, you know the time. The hour has come. Salvation is near now than in the past. The night is gone. The day is at hand. What is Paul talking about? The Bible divides time into two ages, this age and the age to come. Have you heard that? This age and the age to come. And if you read through the New Testament, the writers are clear that the age to come was ushered in with the coming of Jesus. But the culmination of the age to come will not happen until the second coming of Jesus. So in the meantime, there is this overlapping period of the two ages. But Paul was telling his hearers and us, I believe the church today, that we are living in the last days. Does anyone else believe that? So what do you mean when you say that? We are looking forward to to Jesus returning, to restoring all things the way that the originally things were planned. That there will be no more pain, no more hurting, no more sorrow. That he will end Satan and his demons. And he will bring those that are part of the family into an eternal relationship with him and the Father forever. We don't know when Jesus will return. And so we should live as those who are always prepared for that day. Don't you want to be ready? I'm pretty sure there's a parable somewhere that Jesus told. Don't you want to be a worker who is ready for that day when he returns? Or do you want to be asleep at the wheel, coasting through life? Let me also say this. Even if Jesus does not return in our lifetime, even if our life on earth here is cut short, every gray hair that you have, every lost hair, Every wrinkle, every sore muscle, every funeral you attend should be a reminder that time is not on our side. It's not on our side. See, it always says it at funerals, death is no respecter of persons. We don't know our final day. So what does our life look like from today until whatever that day is? This brings an urgency to this matter of loving others. Don't you want to be known as someone who is a lover of people? Believers are to wake up from that spiritual laziness, love their neighbors while they have the opportunity to do so. Paul, he was passionate about this idea that love is everything. He taught it to his friends in Corinth. It's this famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. It's called the the love chapter. In the first three verses, though, this is what he says. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, pretty, pretty cool gift, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, pretty great gifts, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my own body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is everything. If we try to live for the Lord by attending the most Bible studies, by never missing a Sunday morning, by letting people know on social media that we love Jesus, by even serving him in some sort of ministry or missionary role, if we do not love others, we are nothing and we have no influence over the people around us for the sake of God's kingdom. Love is everything. And the call to love others is urgent today. Finally, the last one is this. The call to love others is specific. 
Paul next tells us that there is something we must put on and something we must take off if we are going to succeed at loving others. Look what he says in verse 12 at the end there, 12b. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That ought to jump off the page at you because the theme of darkness in life goes from cover to cover in your Bible. This idea that these works of darkness are in us. They are who we were before Christ. We've talked about it this last year through the book of Romans that we we were before we knew Jesus. We were against God. We were enemies with God. We were at war with God. But then Jesus entering into us, his spirit becoming uh, as a as a person who is a resident dweller in our hearts from that moment forward. He begins to work in our lives and we are able to choose lightness. But yet even Paul knew that God did not remove the flesh completely at that moment, did he? That there were still these two things now going on inside of us at the same time at war with one another, the flesh and the spirit. And that sometimes we walk out the door and we choose to live by the flesh and we gratify its desires rather than living by the flesh to glorify God and what we do and say. He says, cast off the works of darkness. It's a choice and put on the armor of light. Paul is specific about what the works of darkness are that we are supposed to discard. He says, let us walk properly. That is a verb. Teenagers, you should be underlining that walk properly as in the daytime. And he explains what he means. Not in orgies, not in drunkenness, not in drinking so much that you lose the ability to love others instead of love yourselves. Not in sexual immorality. You know what that means. Not in sensuality. Pastor Brian, what's the difference? Sensuality is when we are so focused on pleasing ourselves that nothing else in the world matters. It's the loving ourselves, not in quarreling, quarreling. As someone in the first service told me, he looked that up in his like 1960s Webster dictionary. Do you know what that said? Argument of angry words. Christian, did you know that we are called to not argue with angry words? (laughs) Not in person, not on social media. Not in the shower while you're standing there thinking about how you're going to respond to your ugly neighbor and what they said. Not quarreling, not jealousy. All of these things, Paul says, these are works of darkness. They are who you used to be, Christian. They are who you used to be. Until we read things like, but God, but God, and he has transformed your life to be a person who can choose to put on the armor of light. And I love that word armor because Paul knows this is a battle we're going into. This idea that we would choose to lay aside the darkness and pick up the armor of light. Doesn't that sound like you're prepared for a battle for war? Satan, real, okay? He's real. His demons are real. Spiritual warfare, real. And Paul says, put on the armor of light. Stay away from the works of darkness. And all these things, Brian, you got real negative on us real fast, but no worries. Verse 14, the positive side of this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do you notice that he does not say, don't let Satan gratify your flesh? Don't let your neighbor gratify your own flesh. Sometimes we give Satan a little bit too much credit. Sometimes the one gratifying our flesh, it's almost always us. 
We can't just go, Satan made me do it. No, 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 no. He says, put that stuff off, cast it aside and put on the armor of light, meaning we are the ones responsible for the choice to live and put on Jesus Christ. Now, it is true. If we are Christians, we have already put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's done. But our text here in Romans is is a reference to a more practical day to day, continually, repeatedly putting on Christ. We are to embrace him again and again and again and again. For those of us, when we wake up in the morning, we walk out the door without putting on Christ. That's when we're sleepwalking in this life. That's when we are most likely going to choose our flesh, gratify its desires and not love those around us. When we choose to not put on Christ. An author named Ray Steadman, he gives this illustration. He said, when I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be part of me all day to go where I go and do what I do. They cover me. They make me presentable to others. That is the purpose of clothes. In the same way, the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your life that day. Intend that he go with you wherever you go and that he act through you in everything you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. Is that is that clear? I love that. Because sometimes I think when we talk about, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in Christ. I'm putting on Christ. It's like this this very artistic way of thinking outside the box. And I don't know if I understand what that means, but I understand daily wake up, submit myself to him and his ways, put on Christ and then walk out my door to love him and love others. It is a it is a choice that we have to make on a daily basis, Christian. It is an active choice. Here's the question. How much more would you love those around you if you began each day by putting on Jesus Christ? You see, you might have been thinking, oh, I I mean, I want to love people more. I don't want to be so aggravated with people. I don't want to be so, you know, argumentative with people. I want to be more generous. I want to love people the way God loves them. I just don't know how to do it. He tells us, get up in the morning and put on Jesus Christ. Because Christ in us will help us to love those around us, even those who are sometimes seemingly unlovable. (laughs) Christ in us. Christ in us. Last thing. Told you. Bonus point. Verse 14, Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Teenagers, circle Lord, underline it. Adults do the same. Can I get you into the habit of when you see this word Lord that it jumps off the page at you. I don't care what you do. Triangle it. Paul emphasizes that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we put on. We bow to his lordship. Have you ever looked up Lord in the dictionary? I did. Someone or something having power, authority, or influence. A master, ruler, king. Doesn't that sound like the words that we put up on the screen and sing every Sunday? Don't we sing about King Jesus? That he's our master? That he has all authority? I have to wonder if when we sing those words on the screen, if we're not actually actively going out and fulfilling the law and the commands by loving God and loving people, if we're actually just singing those with our lips and our mouths, or if our hearts are truly bowed in worship before an almighty king God. 
Because if we truly mean those things when we sing them, then we are saying he is Lord. He is master. He is ruler. He is king of my life. And his command for me to love others means I should love others. Church family, is Jesus Lord in your life? That's the question. And here's the deal. When it comes to Jesus being Lord of your life, he is king of all or he is not king at all. There is not this way that we can choose to let him be king some of the time. Can you imagine if, if countries where there's kings and queens, if, if the citizens somehow had certain days off from allowing them to be the king? That's funny because it's silly. And yet Christians, we live that way all the time. We decide if it's convenient or not for us at this moment for God to be king of my life. Lord, ruler, master. But if he is, if he is king of your life, he has given us the command to love others. Amen. I'm going to pray, and, and here in a minute, just for the, for the sake of you guys on YouTube and Facebook, we're going to stop our stream today. And this is, I think, um, good timing. As we talk about the command or the call for the church to love those around us, um, we have a video for you to see today from one of the church family members that he wants to share with you what's going on with him. And I think appropriately, we will then pray, pray for this family um, but let me pray, pray, and uh, let, it, let us have everything that has happened today from the reminder of, of communion, Christ's sacrifice on the cross in our place, to the call and command for us then having his blood poured on our lives, set apart to love others. Let us pray and keep that in our thoughts today as we go out, not sleepwalking through our lives this week, but actively putting on Christ and changing the world around us with our love. Father, you are so gracious to us. You have given us of your word this morning that is awfully clear. Father, I pray for grace where we fall short. I pray for, for the spirit to be chiseling away those works of darkness of our old lives so that we would look more and more like the image of your son, Jesus Christ, being able to love those around us, not only the lovable, but the unlovable, that we could like Christ when we are reviled, not reviled back, but to respond out of love, to not demand justice for ourselves, but to hand out grace, because that is the example set for us by our God. Help us to fulfill the law by loving you and loving others, Lord. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.